Sam. All right, go Italy. That'll be the last thing I say about it. You can watch it today at three. Before I get started, I, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine here from Baltimore. This is Jay Baylor on the front row in this blue shirt. And he's a friend. Come on, yeah. Jay is a friend and a big brother, and he's been a mentor in my life. And I think it's important to recognize people who, when you were in your 20s and didn't know a thing and didn't have anything together and were more of a mess for your leaders than you were a help, that there were the kind of people that could see something in you and call something out in you and develop things in you and trust you when you shouldn't have been trusted and help you clean up your messes and all those kinds of things. And Jay has done that for me. I wouldn't be where I am in my life without him. And so I'm, I'm excited to introduce him to you and to say that. And, and I want to give you real quick just a picture of his character because I've got so many amazing images of him. He's, he's got a beautiful... Um, healing ministry. And so I have seen the sick healed over and over and over, people experiencing pain in their bodies over and over and over through his ministry. And so I could share some of those things, blind eyes opening, people with bullets disappearing out of their knees, crazy, amazing, creative miracles, God stuff. But we were on a trip one time and we were getting breakfast, just drinking some coffee together and across the street there was a store owner with a broomstick chasing a street kid off this property and beating the street kid with the stick, this person who would have no honor, no value, no worth within the context of that community. And before any of us on our team could even recognize what was going on, Jay was like full sprinting over to this person who was getting beat up, put himself between that street kid and the store owner who's beating him and just took the hits of the stick and said, you're not doing this. This isn't the way. And so I love that about you. I love that that's your character, to get in between where people are being hurt and battered and bruised and to say, that's enough. The kingdom of God is different. Amen. So one more time, just welcome my friend, because I'll feel loved. And we'll, we'll do some prayer at the end, and so if, if you want prayer for healing, that sort of thing, we're going to pray for you. But we're in this series in Revelation. You can open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. If you're new to the Bible, it's going to be the very last book in your Bible all the way at the end. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to be in the city of Pergamum this morning, but I want to start with Revelation chapter 1 verse 3. It says this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and keep what is written in it. Blessed are those who read this book. Now, obviously, there's a blessing in reading any of the words, any of the books, any of the stories within the Bible, but you know, this is the only book that explicitly says if you read this, there's a blessing. And what I want to do is I want to I shift where our eyes might be looking and say that what it, and ask, what is that blessing? And here it is. The blessing is Jesus. Because this book, Revelation, is an unveiling of Jesus. 
of who Jesus is, the character of Jesus, the importance of Jesus, the imminence of Jesus, the transcendence of Jesus, the lamb who was slain, and the glorified Christ to whom John the Revelator fell like a dead man when he saw him. This book is a revelation of Jesus. And revelation, and especially a revelation of Jesus, is always, and this will work anytime you have a revelation in Scripture, but I believe especially here, but revelation is always an, is always an invitation to deeper intimacy. Always. That's the point. That's the point of this book. It's the point of the narrative of Scripture is that the revelation God made known through Jesus is an invitation to each one of us for a more intimate relationship with Jesus. It's an invitation to encounter Jesus and to be transformed by it. It's an invitation to worship Jesus. It's an invitation to live faithfully because we have a revelation of the one who is always faithful to us. It's an invitation. And so as you read this book, and really as you just read the Bible and live out your faith, I want you to remember this. I don't want you to forget this. I want you to remember that it's all an invitation to know Jesus. Not know things about Jesus, but to know Jesus the way you know your best friends, the way you know the people that are closest to you in your life, that kind of relationship. A friendship, but not a casual friendship, not a flippant friendship. Remember, the writer of this, John, who rested his head upon the chest of Jesus, again, is the same who fell as a dead man when he saw him. So I'm not talking about a casual friendship but a friendship nonetheless, an intimate friendship. This is the invitation. And I believe this is the invitation to every church that has received one of these letters. It's gonna be central to the church in Pergamum that we read about today, and it is gonna be central to the life of Grace Midtown. I pray and I hope that we are becoming and moving towards and waking up to the kinds of people who are known for being with Jesus. Like, man, what do you know about Grace Midtown? Oh, they're the friends of God people. Like when you get around them, it, it's, they don't always have all the answers. They don't know how to explain everything. They don't, can't always give you the best arguments. They're not the most impressive with this, that, or the other thing. But man, when I'm around them, the presence of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus on display in them and through them and all around them, spreading everywhere they go. This is our invitation. This is the joy of our life, and this is the delight of God's life to invite us into this. Amen? So I want that to be a piece of our context before I get into some historical context, because in historical context, I don't want us to lose the bigger picture of our hearts burning in love and desire for and delight in Jesus. So now if you want to move to Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, the message to Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Here's this image again calling back to chapter 1. 
I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is, yet you are holding fast to my name, and you did not deny your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan lives. Let's pause here. I want to talk for a brief second about Pergamon. You know, last week, Sam had maps, and he was like a history scholar up here. I graduated next to last in my high school class, so I do not have maps. And I will not even pretend to be a history scholar. But there are a few things that would be important for us today to know about the city of Pergamon. The first is this. It was a wealthy city. It was viewed as a city where wealth could be stored. It is a part of this cluster of churches that John the Revelator of right, is writing to. It's, it's kind of on the top end of those churches. There's altars there. There's many, many altars there to Zeus and Athena and Dionysus. It is a place of God and goddess worship. It's known for that. Not only is it known for that, some believe it was the center of empire or emperor worship at that time. And so you have, so you have all this, this sort of God and goddess worship going on on one, one hand, and then you have people worshiping the emperor and the empire on the other. So it's wealthy and religious. Not very different from Atlanta. Wealthy, lots of wealth here. And very religious. And you know, people say that we kind of don't live in a religious time, and I, I kind of push back on that. I think we live in the most religious time I've ever seen. People don't go to church, and so we might talk about it differently, but I promise you there are people that they're looking, there's things people are looking to for transcendence, for redemption, for dignity, for worth, for value, for meaning, for purpose, to form them, to shape them, to validate them. Just look at their Instagram feed. It's there. We live in a religious time, not unlike this time. And so idols and temples are the context of this city. It's all around. And I know Rob talked about idols earlier in this series, but I think it's important for us to be reminded where we give our attention, where we give our affection, where we give our allegiance. And by the way, that's a pretty good process in sort of how it works. It starts by just looking at something, giving our attention to something, our affection starts to build for it, to move towards it, and the next thing you know, we're entangled and an allegiance to it. We're finding security and identity and value and worth in it. And so where, like in Pergamum, do we have idols in our life? Where are the areas of our life where we are giving undue attention, undue affection, undue allegiance, that is contrary to the way of Jesus and to the word of God and the life of the church. And I ask that as a pointed question. I want you to really pray about it and think about it. I'm not going to rail against a bunch of things. That's not my lane. My lane is to ask questions. My lane is to say, are you willing to ask Jesus, the glorified Christ, the one inviting you into intimate relationship, where are the areas of my life that I'm not attentive to you? that my affection is not towards you, that I'm not holding faithfully my allegiance to you in the way you're faithfully holding your allegiance to me. Where are those areas? Will you allow Jesus to speak to your heart? Will you allow Jesus to change your habits? Will you allow Jesus to renew your mind in the way you're thinking? Will you allow Jesus through love to transform you and to set you free? 
So this is the city we're in. And so there's an image around this. There's an image of Jesus that we're given in context of this city. There's an image of Satan's throne that we're given in context of this city. So I want to unpack those really quick. And again, I know this, this sword coming out of Jesus' mouth, this is an image we've talked about before, but it, but it bears repeating. And I'll just say this. This is not a violent image. This is a subversive image. The writer here isn't trying to tell us that now that the church is facing pressure and persecution, let's all pick up the military tactics of Rome. Let's just all pick up the way of swords and violence and overthrow and kill and be a part of the death machine. That's not what the writer's doing here. The writer is subverting that text by emptying it of its power by saying, oh, the sword of Jesus? That's coming out of his mouth. That's the words of Jesus. It's not the military might of Jesus. It's the word. It's the way he speaks. It's not as if like Rome, that Jesus is now dangling the threat of death over people who don't conform. No. What did, what did Peter say in John 6? Where else would we go? Only you have what? The words of life. Jesus doesn't offer the threat of death. Jesus gives words of life and of resurrection. This is the power that subverts the way of death. It is living with words of life. It is believing words of life. It is receiving the words of life. You see, Jesus, unlike Rome and all other empires and emperors that have gone before and come after, and all these gods that have temples here, Jesus doesn't overcome through violence. He doesn't overcome through military might. Jesus overcomes through revelation, through resurrection, through renewal. That's how the church is moving in the world we find ourselves, because we have a revelation of Jesus that's changing our lives, that invites everyone else to a different and alternative and better way. We live in the power of resurrection, that the forces of death don't have the final word. Jesus holds the keys of life and death because he is the word of life. Resurrection is the final word. And through renewal... Through the church, through the people of God, Jesus is making all things new. And it's frustrating sometimes. It's a mustard seed way of life. He told us this in the Sermon on the Mount, but the Sermon on the Mount is true. And it's a mustard seed way of life. And then we've got this thing. We've got the throne of Satan. And what the writer here is trying to tell us is this is the place of, that is coming externally, adversarially against the church and persecuting the church and pressuring the church and grinding down against the church. The Bible tells us that Satan comes what? To kill, to steal, and to destroy. And it's interesting, right? This is what empires and nations and governments and oppressors and bullies often do. They participate in this way of death. This way of the adversary, the way of stealing and killing and destroying. In fact, this is the power that often they force upon others and the power by which they maintain 
their status. And this is how Rome maintained their status. It's an ability of the, it's the ability to kill you. That's how they get their power and stay in power. It is that they can take your life. They can. They can deal you death. They can steal your life. They can destroy everything you hold sacred. And in that environment, the pressure to compromise is immense, is it not? When the boot of empire is on the back of your neck, when the sword of empire is at your throat, when your back is against the wall, as Howard Thurman said, is not the pressure to compromise immense. And yet here comes Jesus with words of life, the giver of life, overcoming through resurrection, emptying sin and death of its power, all of their power, because resurrection is the final word. Jesus is the judge. And so in this part of the text, what is the writer telling us? Jesus, not Rome, has the power over life and death in your life. And if you happen to lose your life, as Antipas does, as we'll see later in this text, there is resurrection for you. And it's important that we recapture and become re-enchanted with the reality of resurrection. And Paul spent a ton of time talking about it in the New Testament. And we're all together losing it and getting a little nervous about it. And we're kind of like, man, if I just live the Sermon on the Mount, it doesn't really matter if I believe in resurrection and all these other things. No, it matters. Resurrection matters because it is Jesus emptying the powers of death that you and injustice that you want to see evacuated from your life in city. It's Jesus emptying those things of all their power all the way down to the power to steal and destroy and kill your life and everything you hold sacred and dear. Resurrection matters. We are resurrection People, our vocation is to pray and to practice resurrection. That's everyone's vocation. Now, there's a bunch of unique ways that comes out, but I promise you it's everyone's vocation that has said yes to Jesus, to practice a resurrection way of life. Is this all right? Are you with me? There's another phrase in this text that we read. I love this. Jesus is so tender. By the way, I want to challenge you. When you read these books in the prophets, some of you read this stuff like God's mad and angry. And sometimes God does get a little angry about stuff the way I get angry about injustice. Being angry about injustice is okay. We just don't sin and do violence and all those vengeance out of all that stuff, right? But listen, I want you to attempt to read some of this stuff with tenderness, with kindness. That's the voice, that's the tone of Jesus. But I love this, he says this. He's, he's writing to this church in Pergamum that's facing this external pressure, this persecution, idols everywhere, the empire is everywhere, and he goes, look, I know where you live. I know where you live. I see you. Like, have you ever had anyone say that to you? Like, you're going through something. Maybe you've lost a parent. Maybe you've lost a child. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you're just facing immense pressure. Maybe things aren't going the way you planned them to go. And a friend or a spouse or a sibling or a random person with a prophetic word has said, I see you. And you know they know. 
Like they really see you. They really know where you are. And there's a tenderness in their voice. And they like really get it. And you don't have to explain it. You don't have to spiritualize it. You don't, you don't have to muster up any kind of energy. You, you, you don't, like they just, I see you. Like I know what you've been through. I know what's going on in your life. I know what's going on in your city. I know what's going on in your ministry. Like, Rob, I see you. Leading the church through a pandemic, it's hard. Impossible. Jesus is going, I see you. Jay, I see you. You're in Baltimore. The ministry's hard. And it's not all the reports that we hear. There's some amazing things happening in Baltimore. But it's like Jesus sees you and the work. And to each one of us, Jesus is going, I see you. Like, I see you in your life. I see you in your struggle. I see you in your pain. I see you in the pressure. And I understand. I know you. I'm telling you, God sees you. I love that song we were singing. I can't remember the words. I'm not good at that. That's why, you know. But God sees you. You're not alone in the pressure. You're not alone in the persecution. You're not alone in your pain. You're not alone in your failure. You're not alone in the way you've messed up. You're not alone in the ways that those things happened to you that you didn't deserve and weren't your fault. And you're not alone in the messes that you're trying to clean up because of the things you did do that are your fault. Like God sees you and is with you. I mean, I think about some of the times in my life, and they're too personal to share, when I've experienced some deep loss, and I've like been overwhelmed to the point of sickness. Like, have you ever just experienced loss to where you're like in bed and you can't move and you're like exhausted? And I've had some times in those moments where Jesus has spoken something so personal to me that it just energized my inner being. I mean, I was still physically exhausted, but like on the inside, I could feel life in my body because of the kindness and the tender words of Jesus speaking right to where I was and am. I see you. And God sees you. And I want to offer this to you as a spiritual formation tip. Ask God to tell you how God sees you. Have you ever done that? Have you ever spent some time in your prayer room, in your prayer closet, just going, Jesus, how do you see me? What do you see? Do you know me? I get it. Sometimes we're under so much pressure. We're just yelling at God, and that's okay. We're gonna, we've done a series in the Psalms. We'll probably do a series in the, in, in the Psalms in the future. Around how, like, hey, shake your fists at God. Be mad with God. It's okay. God's not threatened by that. But I want to offer the other side of that. Like, have you taken a moment to be silent, to listen to about how God sees you? And is with you in the midst of that stuff. I'm going to offer that. Finally, not only does God know you, not only does Jesus know you, Jesus knows you by name. This is going to be a theme in this chapter. It's a theme actually in this book. The empire, the beast, the way of the world, the way of the kingdoms of the world, you'll always just be a number. Right? The beast to the beast, you're just a number. That's in this book, just a number. But Jesus, he's naming names. My servant Antipas, 
He knows you by name. He knows you by name. He knows your name. He loves your name. He values your name. He cherishes your name. And you're not just a number. You're not just a product. You're not just a consumer. You're not just a person to be commodified. You're not a person without dignity or without value or without worth. Without worth. You are a person full of identity, imaged in the image of God, fashioned to do good. God's poem made to do good, dignity, worth, value, purpose, security, your name. I love it, that scene at the end of the crucible. Like, you can't have my name. Because it matters. It matters. So I love this. He talks about Antipas, and he says, he says you're holding fast. Isn't this beautiful that Jesus affirms them? Jesus affirms that they're holding fast to the faith. Like you're under all this pressure. One of the leaders of, in your church has just been martyred and you're holding fast. Have, I mean, that's a shaking event when, the, when a leader is martyred by the state powers. Like you might think about shutting things down. You might think about leaving town. You might think, hey, maybe goddess worship isn't so bad after all. Like maybe we should just participate in that festival and in that orgy and do that stuff because they're killing us when we don't. But Jesus affirms, no, you're holding fast to the faith. And this is so beautiful because this is a context where worship of the emperor and these false gods are expected and demanded. It's not just optional, it's expected and demanded, and yet this group of Jesus followers hold fast to the name of Jesus. It says you're holding fast to the name, right? Like, this means they're locating their sense of identity and belonging and significance in the Jesus way of life. I love it. And so ask Jesus to affirm you as well. Jesus affirmed me. What do you like about me? What am I doing well? What do you see in my life that's bearing fruit? What are the things in my life that are flowering? What are the things in my life that I'm offering to the world and it's a good gift? Where are the areas of my life that you're pleased and delighting in? What are those things? Are we spending any time meditating on those things? Are we spending any time thinking about those things? Do we have friends and family and people in our lives that are naming and drawing those things out of us? One of my concerns about our generation right now, and I believe in this, we need to deal with our core wounds. But some of us never spend any time dealing with our core identity. As the beloved of God who has good to offer the world. You have good to offer the world. There's things in you that matter. Jesus will affirm them. But then he says this. Let's read some more. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you. There are, there are some there, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, 
who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and practice fornication. So you also have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword in my mouth. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit has to say to the churches. Again, I want to say it matters how you read this verse because if you read, but I have a few things against you like an angry person, it's going to take you right to shame and guilt and all kinds of other things. But if you've been in a close and intimate relationship with a friend or a spouse or a parent, you know that if you're going to have an intimate relationship, a faithfully, a, 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 a relationship of loving faithfulness, a covenantal relationship, then you know this kind of conversation matters and it goes really good when it's tender. Because really what Jesus is doing here is he's saying to this church who he loves, this is how I'm experiencing you. And this is what it feels like. And these are my needs in this relationship. And this is how I would like this thing to work. And here's the covenant that we bonded over, that we agreed to, that we said yes to, that we entered into. This isn't Jesus trying to catch you in the act like an angry whoever. This is a humble and vulnerable Jesus coming to this church and saying, this is how I'm experiencing you. This is what it feels like. Let me name those things. And we need this in our marriages. We need this in our friendships. We need this in our relationships, that we would have the vulnerability and the openness and the honesty to have the kinds of relationships that I could say, hey, this is how I'm experiencing you. Or better yet, some of you in leadership positions. Or husbands or wives with your children. Do you ever ask them how they're experiencing you? The people you manage, have you ever asked them how they're experiencing you? Your husband or your wife, have you asked them how they're experiencing you? Your friends, have you asked them, how are you experiencing me? It's an important and powerful question. And so this is what Jesus is doing here. And it's tenderness. And it's the kind of honesty that is necessary for a loving covenant relationship to flourish. It's an invitation to deeper intimacy, isn't it? This is what Jesus is doing here. And so I want to propose this. Let's be the people who ask Jesus, hey, what's hindering love in my life? Because this is what Jesus means when he says, repent or else I'm going to come and make war. Again, we know Jesus is emptying war and death of its power. That's not the point. The author's subverting it. Jesus is going to make war but through the sword of his mouth because the words of life are going to cut off everything in your life that is hindering love in every area of your life that death is flourishing. Every place that we're giving undue attention, affection, and allegiance, Jesus is going to cut that stuff off, and we need to welcome that. The circumcision of the heart, the sword of the spirit that cuts both ways, right? And so could we ask Jesus, could we be the kind of people that ask Jesus, where in my life is love being hindered? Where in my life is death flourishing? And so the pressure is both external and internal. And when he mentions Balaam, he's referring to a a prophet, a false prophet in the book of Numbers who realized he couldn't get God to curse God's people because God is faithful and God doesn't curse God's people. But he realized he could tempt and influence God's people to rebel against God. 
And so this is the internal pressure that, that Jesus is starting to see creep into this community and into this church. That God is going to remain faithful to this church who's under pressure and persecution. But some people are starting to waver and, and begin to speak of compromise and, and to rebel against the, the covenant faithfulness they have with Jesus and say, maybe we should just participate in all of these larger cultural things happening so like our friends aren't getting martyred in arenas. So like we can actually shop and eat food at the market. So that we like, you know, can just live a, a normal life. And so that's what's likely happening here is that, is that there's a, an, an individual or a group that the writer here is referring to as Balaam that represents this sort of, this way of compromising the Jesus way of life by, by participating in the worship in the temples and the empire worship, emperor worship. And for a quick second, I want to say here, the, the importance of loving and faithful covenant relationships can't, can't be lost on us here in this text because marriage is a theme in this Bible. Or, and, and marriage is a theme in this book, in this book of Revelation. And I want, to say, I want to say some real quick things about marriage, but I want to say this. If you're not married, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with you. And you don't need to get married to achieve fullness in life. You don't need to get married to be like spiritually vibrant. You don't need to be married to like live your life and do your vocation and lead and do whatever the things God has called you to do. So I don't want you to hear any of that today. That's not what I'm saying. But marriage is being referred to, and so I want to speak to marriage. And I just quickly want to say this. What's happening here, the reason that this writer is calling out fornication is because this is about losing that covenantal faithfulness and the importance of what the Christian marriage can be and should be is an image to the world of the covenant faithfulness between God and God's people. And then we step outside of that covenant faithfulness, we lose the power of that image to the world. And so that's important, and that's important in this book, that our marriages can and should reflect the loving faithfulness of God's good and generous covenant with us. That's one of the primary, if not the primary purpose of the Christian marriage, to, to reflect the loving faithfulness of God's good and generous covenant with us. And I think some of us need to stop railing against the morality or immorality, if you will, of, of the city, and, and like, let's, let's just like invest in good marriages and healthy relationships, like, what if we just had the kind of friendships and marriages that the world was like, wow, that's a little different. Instead of like yelling at us about all the stuff we're doing that they're doing too, but not talking about. I know, I'm a pastoral care pastor. You all share that stuff with me. <laughs> but what if we invested in relationships and marriages of covenantal faithfulness? that reflected the good and generous love of God to the world. Because I believe our marriages, though potentially in contrast to what's happening around us culturally, it's what we need, it's what the world, I think, needs to see. Amen? And so I would just ask this quickly again. What are the areas of our lives that we would rather live in contrast or rather than living in contrast to the greater 
cultural milieu we find ourselves in here in Atlanta, we're living like the culture around us. Would you be willing to ask Jesus that? Like, where are the areas? Like, there's things in our culture we can receive. And there's things in our culture, like, we, we, and, and ways of our culture that we actually need to reject. Not in a mean-spirited, adversarial way, but like, in a, we're just living in a contrasting way. Gently, peaceably, invitationally, but we're just living different than the way the culture lives. In many ways, we, we, we look and live like the larger culture does. Again, there's things we can receive. But my question for us this morning would be, what are some things that maybe in your life that you need to let go of to live different, to live in contrast to the world around you? And we might be blind to some of those areas, so that's why we need Jesus to help us to see them. Amen? All right, I'm going to wrap this thing up. Last, last few verses. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone, and on the white stone it's written a new name that no one knows except the one that receives it. Very quickly, hidden manna. Obviously, we're referring to the wilderness time in the desert when the, the, the children of Israel, they're in the wilderness, they're in the desert, and they're waking up in the morning, and God is providing what? Manna, bread, food to eat. Enough for every person to have. If you took more than you needed, it rotted. I don't know. Those who have ears, let them hear. But there was manna in the desert. In other words, there's the people of God living in contrast to the empire Egypt. It's costing them something. They're in the wilderness. And even though they're in the wilderness, God sees and hears and provides and sustains. And if you remember, Jesus is the true bread of life, right? He says this in the Gospel of John in, a, in the... Um, in the wilderness narrative, we see Jesus saying, hey, man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, right? So we're getting back to this word thing. Because you and I don't live by bread alone, by food alone, by bank account alone. We live by every word that what proceeds from the mouth of God. We need the hidden manna, those of us who follow Jesus and count the cost and pay the cost of following Jesus, you receive the hidden manna, the words of life that are the very bread of life that sustain you and provide for you internally and externally. How many of you have stories in your life? I mean, I'm thinking of these stories where like early in our marriage, when my wife and I, we had no money, couldn't pay the bills, like nothing to even put in the savings, like that kind of check to check kind of living. And all of a sudden, we'd have like a bill to pay and no money. And then we'd open our mailbox that day and there'd be a check in the mail from someone down to like the cent. You know, it'd be like $107.23. Like who's hearing God's voice enough to know to tag 23 cents on the end? Well, I've got some friends like that and you need some friends like that. And we were so joyful to have the provision of God in our life like that. And, there, and, and some of the reason why we were in that situation, we were making some decisions about following Jesus and how we wanted to live our life. And God provided for us in that place. And I believe God, the hidden manna, will provide for you, will sustain you, will make a way for you as you decide to follow Jesus, even if it costs you something, even if it's in contrast to the, to the larger uh, culture. Finally, to everyone who conquers a new name. I love this. It's, we're back to the words of the mouth. Jesus' words of life have the power to name you. Jesus' words of life have the power to name you. And your name matters. What does your name mean? 
What does it say about you? The name you're, you know, whoever named you, what does that say about you? What does it mean? Have you ever looked into that? Have you gotten some meaning around your name, some value in your name? I was named after Amos 524, Justin Brooke. Let justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. How many of you ever heard me talk about having right relationships with people? My dad nailed it. He was pretty good. Not bad for an ex-27-year-old, 30-year-old hippie. He did good. Reading his Bible, asking God. Yeah? Your name matters. The name you have matters. It's not that Jesus is trying to rip the name you have out of your life. Actually, the name you have matters. And I believe God wants to speak to you through the name that you have. But more than that, Jesus has a new name for you. That there's a name that speaks to all your dignity, all your value, all your worth, all your identity that provides security and safety and belonging. A name just for you as this book, as this letter promises, a name that only you would know, a, a personal, so personally intimate that only you could know it. That Jesus has a name for you. Have you ever asked him, Jesus, I've asked him a few times and I've heard a few times, what is your name for me? And those times have changed my life. Things that utterly, that I would have said were nowhere near in my personality or in the way I live and move and have my way in the world that are there. Amen? The band can come because I'm, I'm about done. The last thing that this new name does is the name of adoption. It's the name of adoption. It's just not that you're a, a whole new name, but it's, it's, it's a new name in the sense of the quality of your name. That it's the name of adoption, that you're now a part of the family of God. You're adopted in. And so I want to quickly look at a, just read this, Colossians 3.10. You have clothed yourself with the new self, the new name, which is being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free, but Christ is all and in all. We are being given a name that has adopted us into a family that makes us inheritors of everything that Jesus has because Jesus is the prize. And what Colossians tells us is when we're adopted into that family and take on that name, that every wall of hostility that divides the people of God and the people of the world is annihilated in the name, in the new name that Jesus has given us and the church. And that Jesus is the prize. When we look at this, Jesus is the prize. The giver of life is the prize. If we get Jesus, we win. If you don't quit, you win, right? Like Jesus is the prize. But here's the prize that, gives you, that Jesus gives you. One another. We get each other. This is the prize. This is the promise. This is the hidden manna that sustains us. It's not that the Jesus supernaturally sustains us through hidden manna, and he does. But it's that Jesus sustains us through the life that we share together as we work to annihilate and to abolish the walls of hostility that divide us. Amen? And so in the words of, uh, of poet Aaron Weiss, let's rest our head upon the knee where all division ceases to be. Amen? Bless you.